0: Hello again, this is Joe Farinaccio from SmallTrimorans.com and once again, uh, we're speaking on the phone today with Jim Brown. Good morning, Jim.
1: Hello there, Joe.
0: Hey, listen, uh, we're gonna, um, continue our discussion, Jim, about the, um, the, uh, the Nugget Trimoran, the Piver Nugget. I know you've got some interesting things to say about the Nugget, um, and, uh, we can begin our discussion, uh, uh, uh specifically about the similarities and the dissimilarities I'd like to ask you about between the the, the Frolic and and what became known as the Nugget Trimeran.
1: Oh boy, uh, that's an interesting question. There were some significant differences. They were basically very alike. Um, and last time we spoke, I mentioned that I thought that the that the Frolic, the 16 foot Piver designed Frolic, was the first quote perfect trimaran configuration because it did all the things that the catamarans of the day did not do. Uh you know, it was uh, it would uh sail to windward, it came about reliably and you could steer it downwind. <laughs> right. And uh the early catamarans at that time uh had real difficulty with all of those features. Now the the uh the nugget, the next size up, the twenty four footer the frolic was 16 feet, two sheets of plywood. The nugget was three sheets of plywood, 24 feet long, and it was it, its main hull was shaped very much like the uh, the frolic. It was just enormously bigger. It seemed huge to us at the time. Uh, the uh, The major section through the main hull was a V shape. That is. Uh, 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 the uh, the underbody was a was a V. What the water saw had a sharp ridge, median ridge, and then it flared out to a a chine more or less at the waterline. And uh, that was true of the frolic. Also, uh, the bottom panels uh, uh, tended to flatten out a little bit toward the stern. And both of these boats had a main hull. Slenderness ratio, a fineness ratio, of about seven. That is, they were seven times longer at the waterline than they were wide at the waterline.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, both of them were were similar in that respect, and uh, both of them uh, had a had a big deep centerboard and a big deep rudder. So the main hull underbody configuration was very much like that of the Frolic. It did. The, the, the nugget differed substantially in its outriggers in the, the configuration of the float hulls. The uh, the frolic had these uh, flat bottom, ski bottom floats, whereas the the nugget floats were a, a really a brilliantly simple. They were their major section was square, but on edge that it, it, it was. It was a long, essentially a long box that was uh, set on one corner mounted so the, the, uh, the water saw the underbody of the float to be very much like that of the main hull. That is, it was, it was a V section until you began right. to drive it down deep enough so that the upper portion of the box on edge would, would uh, occasionally be submerged if you were driving the boat very hard. And uh, and this configuration, uh, uh, the wonderfully simple thing about it is that all four sides of the box had exactly the same profile, um, and uh, and it was a, uh, uh, a, a about a twelve uh, a foot long straight uh, uh, box, and then tapering toward the ends. One edge of the profile of each panel would sweep up to meet the upper edge. The the lower edge had a long curve in it that would sweep up and meet the upper edge. And if these four identical panels were put together in a box, we had the upper two panels converging at a, a long, straight, median ridge down the deck with the deck tapering off downward at 45-degree angles on both sides. And then there would be another 90-degree corner, and the bottom two panels would also converge at the straight 90-degree section at the keel, but with both ends tapering up, both panels at both ends tapered up so as to produce something that the, the listener may wish to have a look at in the uh, in the photographs uh, yeah that's and, very
0: evident in the photographs jim
1: uh-huh yeah and uh the thing about this this float configuration was that it was remarkably easy to build all of the angles at the at the chines and keels and the deck and they were all 90 degrees mm-hmm. and uh uh the the uh, the the floats were built with a bulkhead inside a square bulkhead, but the square again would be on edge, um, uh, uh, mounted on edge, uh, a square bulkhead at each connective. That is where it connected to the crossbeam, and so uh, the builder could attach a a two by four to the square bulkhead and have it stick up out of the upper corner of the Float and attach that to the crossbeam. It was a remarkably simple and very strong, durable connective. And um, uh, the uh, the shape of that float was not especially efficient. Um, it had a rather blunt waterline. That is uh, at rest anyway. The uh, uh, the entry was uh, uh, the so-called half angle of entry was somewhat more abrupt than it would be for the main hull, and the outrun tended to develop a little suction at times. At the stern, You could, uh, when the boat got going fast and hit a wave just right, you could actually hear the thing going <laughs> <laughs> at the stern. <laughs> but um, the wonderful thing about that, that float configuration was that... Uh, Uh, when driven very hard or when the boat was overwhelmed by a wave, uh, green water on the deck of the float would dump itself off of both sides instantly. There was no flat for the water to sit on, on the floats. There was on the main hull. Of course, there was a flat foredeck and a flat stern deck on the main hull, but uh, it took a much bigger wave to inundate the main hull. The float, however, could be driven down by sailing in, in, a, in a real breeze. You could, you could drive the float down to the point where it was driving through the crest, which we uh, began to realize was normal behavior for a modern trimaran. It was, it was absolutely permissible to drive the float through the crest, so that the, uh, the the deck of the float was absolutely inundated by the crest of the wave at times. Uh, if you were to drive the boat hard enough to push the entire float underwater full length, not just as the crest rolled down the deck, but full length, at that point you knew that you were pushing the boat too hard, and therein, emerged the basic difference between the modern trimaran and the modern catamaran. The, 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 the difference is that the trimaran becomes much more communicative with the sailor. It's a much more user-friendly, uh, uh, intuitive thing to sail than the catamaran because in the trimaran it is possible to drive the float underwater without lifting up the main hull. And uh, when that float is underwater, it's very clear to the sailor that he's got to change course or dump the sheet or whatever in order to not drive the boat so hard, perhaps stop and reef. And so um, it was uh, uh, right in there with that V-shaped deck, that is the profile of the deck allowed dumping the water off of both sides, that made us realize that uh, we could see so clearly when the trimaran was being overdriven, whereas in the catamaran, one does not drive down the lee, the lee hull before picking up the weather hull. And so the the uh, the prospect of capsize in the catamaran, particularly with all of us who were at that point greenhorn sailors and trying to learn how to do this with these boats, the, uh, the prospect of capsize was uh, was much greater in the, in the catamaran, and that, incidentally, prevails to this day. So uh, the difference between the catamaran and the, and the trimaran is one of intuitiveness or or, uh, or user-friendliness, whereas the difference between the Frolic trimaran and the Nugget trimaran was that it was uh, uh, much more communicative. That is, when you drove the leaf float down, you knew it in the Frolic all right, but it was hard to get it back up because it had a big, flat deck with a lot of water on it, whereas in the Nugget the thing would pop out of the back of the wave and keep going. Uh, without tending to stop the boat, also the, uh, the the float connective was suspended downwards from the crossbeam, so you could drive the the float underwater without dragging the crossbeam through the water, and all of that is, I think, uh, 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 critical to the uh, development of the modern trimaran because. The, the uh, uh, cr- uh, crossbeam connective to the float resembled very much what existed um, a, a couple of thousand years ago with the connectives that were worked out by ancient, pe- ancient people of the South Pacific who realized that they had to be able to drive their floats under without dragging the crossbeams. Uh, The crossbeams were things, you know, like as big as your arms. Uh, Even in a 24-footer, they were bigger than your arms. They were four-by-fours. And uh, you start dragging that thing through the water, and uh, all of a sudden the course of the boat is changed by that drag. It tends to drag the boat off the wind. And if you're trying at that time to head the boat up into the wind in order to dump the wind out of the sails in a heavy gust, all of a sudden, uh, uh, with the frolic, we had the, 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 the platform dragging through the water and working counter to what the helmsman was trying to do. It was dragging the boat downwind instead of upwind. And, uh, and so... Uh, with the with the nugget with that configuration with the nugget we had i think a much more seaworthy configuration than we had in the frolic and the reason i'm telling this story in such detail is that for the next 30 years <laughs> that capability was lost because at at the at the point where uh, my wife and i took the the, the the nugget to see it wasn't the first nugget, as I've explained. The first one was built by this great guy, Carlton Eugene, but it stayed in the San Francisco Bay. and Joanna and I uh, sailed out the gate with our friend Dick York and turned left and, and uh, decided we were you know headed for Panama and, right. uh, and uh, after that, uh, there were some objections raised to the performance char- characteristics as far as drag and speed were concerned. The original floats on the nugget were not as good as what came next, which was the, the, uh, the, the kite-shaped section for the floats. Piver then built his 30-footer, the so-called um, uh, nimble trimaran, and Pyre's first nimble trimaran had floats whose sections were in the shape of a of a kite. That is, they were still ridged on deck. They had a centerline median ridge running down the middle of the deck, but the under panels were much deeper. They went down deeper into the water, and and uh, so at rest you had uh, more float in the water and a sharper angle at the uh, at the uh, apex of the keel of the float and uh, and and that that float also was mounted such that if driven underwater it, it you could have waves washing down the deck without seriously dragging the cross beams and that's the boat that Piver trailered in pieces in 1961 I think trailered in in pieces across the the country, put it in the water, and sailed it to England so as to enter, I think it was the 1962, the first ever transatlantic race, the all-star, the first ever uh, observer, single-handed transatlantic race. He didn't get there in time. He stopped in the Azores, uh, uh, with uh, some difficulties, uh, sails in particular. Uh, we didn't realize what a terrible load these boats were putting on sails and rigging. Uh, and so uh, 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 our, our early seafaring adventures with the boats had, had troubles with uh, sails, rigging, and steering. The steering hardware was... Uh, was getting a lot more stress on it than we anticipated because uh, the boats were going so fast. Right. And and so um, uh, anyway, this evolution of uh, of the uh, the float configuration and its connected to the cross beams developed significantly between the frolic at sixteen feet, the nugget at twenty four feet and the nimble at 30 feet. And um, and uh, that progression, uh, I think, was uh, a very good example of the, the way the early trimarans developed, which was purely by experiment, seeing what worked, what was easy to build, what was cheap to build, and then what broke. But about the time that, that Piver came back to the States with his Nimble, he was beginning to sell plans to individuals who pressed him hard for more cabin space. It was pressure from the public on the designer that caused first the Nugget and then the Nimble to be burdened with what we call top hamper the Nugget, which was never intended to receive any cabin at all. It was intended as a four-passenger open day sailor. I was the, the first guy to put a little cutty cabin on the Nugget, which it was never really intended for. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, successively, the cabins got bigger and bigger on both the Nugget and the, the Pyver Nimble and uh, eventually um, uh, the, the plans that Piver was selling included these much more sprawling cabins in order to provide bunk space in the wings, and that tended to overload the boats um, pathetically, and furthermore the floats developed not a kite shape as in the nimble or not a box-on edge as in the nugget, but instead a straight V with a flat deck, and that flat deck was mounted up against the bottom of the crossbeams, and uh, that that deck was not capable of spilling water uh, quickly, uh, n- not nearly so, uh, so much so as uh, with the earlier boats. And furthermore, pressure from the clients caused the designer to... Designers to eliminate the centerboard. Uh, uh, they were dagger boards, and, uh, and uh, uh, Piver simply took them out of the hulls because of their complication and their vulnerability to damage, particularly in a V bottom hull where the centerboard aperture came right out at the apex of the keel and became a delicate area so that when the boats went aground, there was uh, uh, the likelihood of damage there, and also the trunks could get jammed full of gravel and shells and stuff like that when the boats went aground. And so uh, Piper took the boards out, and when I started designing, I also took the boards out of the V-bottom hulls. My first design, the 38-footer, we called off soundings. The next one, the 34-footer called uh, Manta, they had V-bottom hulls, just as in the piver. They were what was properly referred to by other people as improved pivers. And uh, they, were, they had some other differences that uh, most of us considered to be improvements, but they, they, they did not relate to the hull form. And... Uh, and it wasn't until um, I got into designing the Sea runner series, which was much later, starting at about 1965, I think, uh, that um, I, uh, I um, went to a different main hull configuration, the Sea runner double chined bottom, which had a small flat in the bottom that made it possible to uh, install a very beefy centerboard trunk log so that the joint between the trunk and the bottom of the boat was very strong. And furthermore, we put those mini-keels on there, which were we also called them reef trenchers, which uh, allowed the the boat to go aground uh, in a robust fashion (laughs) without really damaging the hull. So it's an interesting uh, progression there. But there was uh, in, in that progression, there was definitely a decline. I think a decline in the seakeeping properties between the early Piver nuggets that had the diamonds, uh, the, uh, the, the the diamond shape of the the box on edge outrigger hulls, um, and uh, and uh, the next uh, configurations that had either flat float decks or or uh, or uh, uh, the, uh, with the con- uh, con- connective uh, being uh, not separated from the crossbeam, and and so um, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think the original uh, Piver Nugget was an absolutely brilliant design, and um, and it, one of the many things that I've been. One of the few things that I've been disappointed in multi-hull evolution over all the last 40 years, uh, 50 years, is, uh, is that uh, uh, the, the boats have become uh, m- uh, much more, more complicated. Uh, at least the owner-builder's version, uh, versions have become uh, much more complicated and not necessarily more seaworthy than the, than the very early Piver small trimarans. Uh, the, the nugget was perfect in, in other respects. Um, it it was balanced. That is uh, a, a boat a, a, a boat bum uh, boat nut boat designer like me. Talk uh, we talk of balance, meaning uh, is the sail plan located on the boat such that the uh, the thrust developed by the sails. Um, uh, propels the boat forward without causing it to turn up into the wind or turn down off of the wind, um, and this is a difficult thing to manage in in uh, monohulls because monohulls heel so much that the thrust in the sails <clears throat> tends to move outboard, out over the water on the downwind side. And this, of course, tends to to drive the boat up into the wind. The thrust is being applied to the boat from way off center. Uh, And so uh, the sail plan has to be arranged uh, over the hull. We've spoken of this before, I think, Joe. The sail plan has to be arranged uh, over the hull with what they call lead, Um, put the, the thrust of the sails out forward of the center of lateral resistance in the hulls so as to minimize that business of the boat rounding up. That's particularly true in monohulls. But in multi-hulls, and particularly in trimarans, we have something else going on here. As the wind pressure in the sails generates healing effort on the boat and one begins to depress the downwind float hull, the drag on that float hull, of course, increases as, it, as the thing is depressed deeper and driven faster in stronger winds, the drag on the float increases, and there is some healing, although albeit very much less than in, in monohulls. But that healing would tend to drive the bow, of the trimaran up into the wind, except for the drag on the lee hull, which Tends to cancel the, the, uh, the rounding up or weather helm feature of, uh, of uh, driving any sailboat in strong winds. And so it, it gets to be very easy to get a trimaran, particularly a trimaran, to be balanced when going to windward. And the early Piver Nuggets were so perfectly balanced. That I was often able to actually leave the cockpit, leave the helm, and climb out onto the weather float to use my own body weight as, as uh, counterbalance, as, as ballast, and let the boat work its way to windward in a race all by itself. It was amazing to watch the thing. Wow. It looked like it had a brain of its own. In strong winds, the boat would head up a little bit and spill a little, and as the gust declined, the boat would bear off and keep driving, keep keep haul speed. And we could even do it with two or three people out on the weather float with no one at the helm when the boat was close hauled. Now, when the, the, the more off-wind we went, that is, the more we cracked off on a reach and stuff, uh, the more the boat required steering uh, with with the tiller, but uh, um, it it wasn't much steering that is you could really control those early piver designs wonderfully. And I personally don't know why the owner builder, today's owner builder has not re-examined the piver frolic and nugget because they were both, Fabulous little boats that could be built for so little money by people with so little skill, and enjoyed so much with performance that would not any it wouldn't come close to a, a, a modern trimaran such as uh, the Corsairs and so on um, that are so grotesquely overpowered to make them go faster and faster and faster and cost more and more and more. And every time you take them in a race, <laughs> something else breaks, and uh, you end up spending lots of money in order to go out there and beat up your buddies on the race course, whereas with the, we, with the early Trimorans and the early trimaran races, nobody cared who won. We were out there to have a good time, and we've lost that. That's, that's something that I think uh, is lamentable. And uh, I I believe that the Mariners Museum uh, has the plans for the Piver Nugget available. They can they can sell you a set of plans, but they're not they are not the plans you need (laughs) if you're going to rebuild the Nugget. It ought to be the original Nugget that is a four place open day sailor or with a Dodger or a small cuddy cabin, and with those floats perhaps the float should be redrawn uh, so as to uh, uh, include the, uh, the ability to, uh, to dump water off of the deck in a hurry when driving through the wave crests or if the boat is inundated by a breaker. Uh, and uh, and, and that, that float connective that uh, suspended the float below the crossbeams uh, so that only the connective struts themselves were, would be dragging through the water, not the whole crossbeam. Um, uh, in other words, I, I think the, the, the pyran nugget type could be revisited, and indeed it has been revisited, particularly by John Marples with his Sea clipper series. Uh, the Sea clipper does not include some of the features that I've spoken of, That is, the sea clippers do have flat decks, but they're up high enough so that uh, it's very unlikely that uh, they they would be driven through the crests. And uh, also, um, they have uh, a generous flat in the bottom, which uh, uh, makes it possible to uh, install a a centerboard or a daggerboard trunk. Uh, uh, so that uh, it is uh, unlikely to be damaged uh, by grounding. And that flat also uh, makes it possible for the sea clippers to be dragged up onto the beach or uh, handled over rollers, and it'll sit on a flatbed trailer and all that stuff. Uh, a lot to be said about the sea clipper here. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, I think of the sea clippers as the natural progression from the early pirate trimarans into something that is still appropriate for the for the owner-builder. And uh, I, I urge the listeners to, uh, to to have a look at the Sea Clipper series on the Marples website, um, uh, marplesmarine.com, uh, because um, anyone who's interested in designing his own boat uh, or building his own boat should have a have a close look at those sea clippers. They make a lot of sense and uh they uh they they do not go hog wild for performance uh and and they do not go hog wild for how, for high cost. And that's that's where I think the small trimaran came from and uh, where it belongs today. And uh, I, I must say I've been quite disappointed in in what's uh, what's happened uh, most of the uh, production-built, trailerable dry these days are astronomically expensive, and uh, the cost of ownership of those boats is is high because they get pushed so hard that things are bound to break. And, uh, and so uh, I, I think, well, the older you get, the more transitions one has to go through. And I'm looking back on all of this. Now, from the standpoint of uh, picking off my early 80s, and i uh, looking back 50 years, I, I just, I just uh, think that it's it, it's worthwhile to uh, to try to to reexamine where technology and competition has taken the modern multi-hall. I'm not all that pleased with what's happened.
0: Well, I certainly hear your uh, thoughts on. Uh, the intention or at least w- your version of what the the small trimaran should be intended to do with regards to accessibility and affordability and um, uh, performance, you know, weighing the balance of performance versus cost. Uh, I think that bringing the costs down would, would, make, would significantly lower the barrier to entry for a lot of people. And the more people we try and reach and get this message out to hopefully the more people get interested in in the idea of building their own boat and getting out on the water and having some fun with these multi-hulls yeah
1: so that's a good point Yeah, accessibility <laughs> even kids could build those early private, private trimarans you know and it's young Jeez. people uh, people who are uh, just uh, entering uh, the the sailing world that we re- really would like to speak to, and it's very difficult to speak to them when you start out at hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: I so, agree totally. Um, I agree totally.
1: Yeah. So um, also the the other thing about the the nugget, um, what I recognized with the nugget uh, first of all was that uh, it was uh, uh, capable of making at least. A coastal ocean voyage, and uh, my wife and I did that. You know, in 1959, we uh, we, we we went out. <laughs> we were nuts. You know, we wouldn't do it again because Joanna was pregnant at the time, some five months pregnant with our first son, Stephen. But we were, you know, we were so intent on this adventure that we went anyway, and we got away with it. Um, uh, but uh, it, it was risky. Let's face it. But I always knew that in uh, uh, in a coastal voyage, if necessary, we could beach the boat if we got caught out, caught in uh, in any kind of a very difficult situation. Even if Joanna went into labor or whatever, we could we could get ashore by driving her up on the beach. And incidentally, we had to do that on that trip. We beached the boat down there at the tip of Baja, California. And that whole adventure is, uh, is described in, uh, in my book, Among the Multihulls, Volume 1, Chapter 3 and 4, talk about the early piver boats and the, uh, the uh, unforgettable, tremendous adventure that uh, we had with our, our uh, early nugget. And so uh, well, Jim, it doesn't, if you don't spend hundred grand on your boat, it doesn't mean you can't go have a good time even in an ocean voyage. And incidentally, Joe, I heard, I only heard, I was never able to confirm, but uh, Norman Cross once told me that he met a guy who had sailed a nugget around the world, and he didn't want anybody wow. to know about it because he didn't want the publicity.
0: Wow. I wish
1: I knew who that wow. was and uh, that story. You know, that's one. That's a story
0: that we should have in our our out-rigged collection. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing here uh, about okay. the nugget in such detail. You are not the first person uh, that I've ever heard have built a nugget uh, back in the 60s, and then did you know just enjoyed that boat as much as they've enjoyed any other uh, multi-hull. I'm thinking of one man now in particular who who uh built a nugget in New Zealand and he said that he had just every weekend just out there with his family and friends on that nugget and they just enjoyed that boat uh, to no end. He he thinks that there's uh, other than the boat that he designed and built for himself recently uh which is a more of a larger family boat. He said he never enjoyed a boat more than than he enjoyed that nugget. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, Joe Hudson and I have decided that the amount of fun you have with a boat
0: is inversely proportionate to its size. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before, too. Well, Jim, thank you very much uh, for sharing your time with us on this call. And it's it's been a pleasure once again to talk with you. And ne- I've never had anybody share as much uh, information about the Piver Nugget as, as you've shared here today. This is You've given us a lot to think about here.
1: Okay, hey, uh, thank you, and and thanks to the listeners, anyone who's interested in this stuff. You know, there's a lot more where that came from. (laughs) Next time we talk, maybe I'll tell you about going back to Squimsaw, my 40-year-old boat which I sold three years ago, and I'm going back
0: for a little trip in her tomorrow. (laughs) Wow, amazing. All right, Jim, well, all the best to you in your trip, and uh, have fun, and we look forward to our next call with you. Okay, bye-bye.